This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. Hello and welcome to The Third Age, the show where people age 50 and up come to talk about, guess what, aging. I'm David Debbin. My esteemed partner, the great Dr. Peter Brill, is somewhere out in Yellowstone at this very moment, uh, probably scaring the hell out of bears and urging his Sherpas onward. So you can call into me and tell me what you really think of him, and I won't tell him who you are. Seriously, though, he's taking some well-deserved time off, but don't change the station because you will miss out on our ironclad guarantee. If you listen to us, you will never grow old. Now, I am here with our producer, who's Lisa Headley, and our associate producer, who's Emily Figueredo, and they're going to help me figure out how to do a show that's entertaining and intelligent and informative without the sparkling wit of Dr. Peter Brill. So, Emily, if you put that microphone next to your mouth, you'll be able to say hello. How are you? about some ways to be happy. Ooh, that's right. We're going to be talking to, um, uh, let's see, we're going to talk about a little book, that's right, that came out of nowhere to make a big national splash. And if you haven't read it, it's called The Sequoia Seed, Remembering the Truth About Who You Are. The author is Karen Wright, a woman who's had many different careers and lived to tell about them. And we'll find out out uh, what she has to say about finding the real you. But first, I'd like to tell you a little story about some advice I once got about finding the real me. How would you like to hear about that? I'd love to hear about that. Well, I was living in upstate New York. Do you know where that is? You know where New York is? Yes. It's on the <laughs> East Coast. <laughs> right? I, think I'm, I think I'm familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's near Philadelphia and next to New Jersey, right? Okay, what's the capital of New York, Emily? New York. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, what's the capital of New York? Ooh, I'm waiting for him to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. We need to send these people back to school. It's Albany, of course. I was living in upstate New York, which is not I've too far from... I've actually been there, David. You have? Yeah. At Albany? Oh, yeah. Actually, I, it was really a pretty, pretty town. I liked it. I was on a layover up there. You weren't hanging out with Elliot Spitzer, were you? No, wasn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was living in upstate New York, and uh, at the time I was meditating on a steady basis. I was reading spiritual and psychological books. I had retired. It was a long, long time ago. And I was living at the foot of a mountain, which was known as Meads Mountain. And at the top of that mountain was a Tibetan monastery that they had built that housed monks that lived there on a steady basis, along with monks who came and went from the Dalai Lama's uh, sanctuary in in India, so there was some uh, there was some steady monks, and then some. There was always an influx and going back and forth of monks from Tibetan monks from India. And at the time, I was in one of those personal troughs when I didn't really have any idea who I was or what I was doing. I had had a successful career and then crashed and didn't know what to do. I was about forty five years old, just at the onset of the third age, although I didn't know it at the time. And I was looking for the real me, 
and I was not having a lot of success finding the real me. So one day, I went up to the monastery when a visiting Tibetan teacher, uh, they're called Rinpoche's Tibetan teachers, uh, he was giving a talk called, You Don't Know Who You Really Are, which sounds sort of like what we're going to talk about today with Karen Wright, you know. And I didn't know who I really was. I didn't know who I was at all. And seated behind uh, Rinpoche were some monks who had traveled with him from India, and he had an interpreter because he didn't speak English. So his talk was about meditation, about centering, quieting the mind, listening to the heart. And he said, if you do all those things, you'll eventually come to know who you really are. Well, I had been doing that. I'd been meditating for days straight. I'd been listening to my heart. I'd been listening to my mind. I'd been listening to the birds. I'd been listening to my friends. Uh, and I didn't think I knew who I was. Uh, at various times, I thought I was really one thing, then found out I was really another thing, then got confused when I thought I was something else. Did you, that ever happen to you? Yeah, definitely. When you start just stopping and thinking about it, you don't really know where to guide your thoughts. Yeah, you don't know, you don't know if it's the real thing, right? Mm -hmm. So in the question period after the, the Rinpoche's little talk, I raised my hand and I said, well, how do you know when you really know who you are? How do you know that's the right who you are? And the translator translated my question, and the Rinpoche and all his monks started to giggle for some reason at my question, as though I'd asked the silliest thing in the world, you know. Then he looked at me, nodded his head, and through the interpreter, he gave me the answer, which was, you'll know. <laughs> So, uh, I've been listening for the answer for a long time, and I'm pretty sure what I know what it is now, for me, because I've heard so many different versions, and it always comes back to the same thing. I'm not going to tell you what it is until I talk to Karen Wright, but uh, I'll ask that question of her and see if her answer is any different from the Tibetan monk who gave me that answer. What do you think of that? What do you think that meant when he said, you'll know? I guess you'll just feel satisfied and fulfilled with whatever answer you land on. Yeah, you'll, you'll know, you'll, somehow you'll know in your heart that that's the, the right answer. Mm -hmm. And you just, you just, you know, you got to keep asking that question. And if enough times, I think, you get the right answer, the same answer, and it seems so basic and so real. You know, it's like, um, you, know, in, you know what a patent is when you patent something. Well, they say that the best patent to have to make the most money is the most simple thing. In other words, if you can patent a screw or a hammer or the most simple thing, the most things come out of that and they have to use that. So that's the best thing to have. And I think the same is true for figuring out who you really are. Is, is really, it's the, if you come to the most simple answer, the most basic answer, I think everything comes out of that. Now, I may be wrong because Karen, might have, Karen Wright might have another version of it. So that's my little uh, story. What do you think about that, Lisa? Yeah, I mean, th the best thing is to question who you are. Think about all the people out there that never even stop to pause and think about who they are, what their thoughts are, that they're guided by media or other people's thoughts. So yeah. really, that's the first step to understanding yourself is to ask, who am I? Yeah, and since we're in the third age, at least my our audience is, uh, I think it's about time we stopped and uh, asked that question for real because who wants to live a charade past uh, in this time of life? <laughs>
Now, there's uh, today's news story, which I'm going to tell you very quickly, is about someone who inadvertently told others who she really is. The first clue that something comes from New Hampshire, actually. The first clue that something might have been wrong was when a car pulled into a parking lot with an unusual sign stuck to the front end. A Cumberland Farms clerk called around dawn on Thursday to report the car. When the officers showed up, they found a sleeping driver inside the car and a no parking sign and the post stuck in the front grill. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The 23-year-old woman was arrested on marijuana charges and officers were trying to figure out where she hit the sign. So we know where she was. We know what she was. She was uh, <laughs> thinking she was the wrong thing. She right? moved to Kai. <laughs> <laughs> right. A no parking <laughs> sign. That's a great one. We are about to speak with Karen Wright, who is the author of The Sequoia Seed, Remembering the Truth About Who You Really Are. Remembering the Truth About Who You Really Are. Karen's online magazine, or e-zine as they're called, along with her workshops and retreats, Uh, help women to connect to their deepest calling and take a step that she calls risking mediocrity for greatness. So how can we, welcome to the show, and let's find out how we can get ready to take that risk. We'll ask her. Karen, hi. I'm here. Oh, I'm not even, I'm sorry I missed you on because my phones weren't turned up. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you, David? I'm trying my best to figure out who I really am. (laughs) You know, uh, you wrote that every decision you make is guided by a quote from Marcel Proust. What's the quote, and why does it mean so much to you? Mm, Yeah, I ran across this quote about uh, 15 years ago, and every now and then we we run across something in our lives, whether it's something that someone says to us or something we read that just sounds like it describes everything about what we've experienced in life. And this was that quote for me. And the quote goes, The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And I realized at the time that uh, spoke to me, I was that seeker. And I had been seeking everything in my environment to find happiness, to feel more joyful, to feel like I belonged. And I had gone through two marriages um, (laughs) and uh, lots of different jobs, lots lots of different locations. Um, different interests, always in the pursuit of seeing where I might click in life. And when I read that, um, it was it was just sort of like I put on a new pair of glasses that finally brought things into clarity, and I realized that I've been looking in all the wrong places. So it's not uh, where you are, it's how you react to where you are, how you see where you are, how you perceive where you are. When I say where you are, I mean... Uh, either literally or metaphorically. Yeah. You know, and both of those are true, um, because I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between who we are and where we are, um, whether that's literal or figuratively. Um, I know that you were asking a question a little earlier on that that I'm kind of anxious to kind of get to, but... um, What is it? Well, the question was, you know, how do we know who we are? Um, And that was the primary question of my life for a very, very long time. And, um, and all that seeking I did in the world out there didn't tell me a single thing about who I was. It might have told me a lot about who I wasn't. Um, but I think that the answer to that question comes when the question's no longer meaningful to ask. Well, you know, our show is the third age, and we've got an audience of third agers, which, unless you, uh, if you don't know, is uh, about 50-plus. Uh, when did this happen to you? Were you with, in your third age? 
Yeah, I was actually about 47. Mm-hmm, that's yeah. good enough. Getting close, yeah. You, you can get in on, yeah. on, the, on the discount. <laughs> you can get in on the third age discount. AARP had already found me by that point anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so you were, uh, you were obviously in transition of some kind that you were not completely aware of, but you knew that you were not sure of what you were doing and who you were. Yeah, you know, after you try so many things and they just don't seem to fill that hole, um, and, and it's a hole that's difficult to even put words behind, but I think most of us have felt it at one point or another where it just, it, it's, I always describe this as kind of like, you know, turning a, um, a combination lock and you're just listening for that last tumbler to fall into place and you're not quite there yet, and you know it's there, but it just hasn't fallen into place yet. And that's kind of what I felt for a very, very long time, is that I had all the pieces of the puzzle. They just weren't fitting together. And when I ran across this quote, I realized that I'd been looking at the puzzle pieces through the wrong lens. Well, okay, let's take this apart here. You, you, um, you're talking about who you really are. And, and does that mean, are you um, an educator? Are you a mother? Are you a people pleaser? Are you, a, uh, are you a, um, uh, an office manager? What, is, what does it mean when you say who you really are? What is that? Does it mean what you do, what you think, what you believe in, what church you go to? What is that about? Yeah. You know, I have a, uh, a women's retreat, and the very first thing I have them do when they're introducing themselves to all of the other people attending as I say, I want you to tell us who you are without mentioning any role that you play in life. And it's always really interesting watching women squirm when I ask them to do that because we're so used to describing ourselves in the roles that we play, the mother, the activist, the writer, the you know whatever it is. We talk about our age and how many kids we've got, whether we're married, where we live. We talk about all of our life circumstances but none of that really describes who we really are. Well, if you did a retreat for men, the men would tell you what their job was and what they made a living at. Absolutely. So how, is that wrong? I mean, uh, you know, if uh, I'm, uh, I'm a writer, that's what I've been most of my life, a writer, working life. So if somebody says, who are you really, what are you really, uh, I'm a writer. Yeah. Well, I think the difference really comes when we start recognizing that we're not what we do and that there is something beyond just the doing part of us. And that's the part that's gotten me most fascinated in the last couple of years, is recognizing that you know we're kind of people with dual citizenships on this planet. We certainly are a member of the human race, and we've got physical bodies, and we interact with the world through our senses, and everything about that seems to indicate that you know that's who we are, is, is physical human beings. Mm-hmm. But we begin to recognize after, you know, realizing that we don't, that that's not the complete story. Uh, We begin to kind of migrate back toward what's deeper than that. What's that part of me that isn't circumstantial, that doesn't come and go with the lifetime, that lives beyond this moment. Um, And so I, I truly believe that, you know, the, the success that we find in life or the satisfaction or joy that we find in life is our capacity to live in both of those worlds and bring them together so that we have that spiritual wisdom that plays out in our physical life. Well, why would we want to know what we are beyond this lifetime? Well, I think it gives us an opportunity to uh, not be defined 
by the world, uh, not be defined into a little box of what we do in the moment, because we're constantly in a state of evolution. And, you know, the part of us that isn't uh, linked to the circumstances that we're involved with is that part of us that gives us a sense of um, wisdom and gives us an opportunity to use more than just our brains uh, to make decisions, to um, look at the world through a lens that gives us greater clarity around what exactly is going on here. Well, now, wait a second. I'm, uh, I, I have to make you work a little bit here. Oh, Karen. go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, we don't want to be defined by any particular thing, but uh, am, I get, am I perceiving that as we go along in this discussion, you're going to tell us that basically we're all the same? Hmm. That's really <laughs> a good question, David. Thank you, Karen. I've thought about it many times. Yeah, that's a very good question. And I would have to say it depends. <laughs> it depends on what? How's that for an answer? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's a, you, we might be selling those uh, to our audience at some point, but that's not a good answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, we're not all the same, but I do believe that we come from the same stuff. I think that the joy that we have in this life is in our choice around how we wish to be and demonstrate ourselves here um, through the doing, you know, and, and what we affiliate ourselves with and what we involve ourselves with. That's the part or the personality, if you will, that gives us our distinction one from another. But I think at the core of ourselves, at that spiritual core that we are, I do believe we all are the same. Well, now, if we, if we uh, I'm asking you these questions because I'm still looking for Rinpoche. If we, if we, if what you're saying is that, oh, I'm getting a sign that we need to take a break and I'm going to have to hold this question. Okay. I'm sure everybody's on the edge of their seat. Mm -hmm. uh, we will be right back with Karen Wright and David Debin on The Third Age. Don't go away. Listen to Beauty Now, the intersection of cosmetic surgery, longevity, and biomedical innovation for confident decisions in preventative aging on personallifemedia.com. Welcome back to The Third Age. David Devin here with our guest, Karen Wright, who is the author of a book called The Sequoia Seed, Remembering the Truth About Who You Really Are. Welcome back, Karen, and tell us how we can get the book to begin with. Thank you, David. Um, the book you can get out on my website at www.rightminded.com. That's my last name, W-R-I-G-H-T-M-I-N-D-E-D.com. You can also get it over, um, get it offline on Amazon, and it's in the Barnes and Noble stores, and soon to be in a lot of other places. We just completed our second printing and uh, are getting into distribution throughout the country. Congratulations! So Thank there are you. people who are wondering who they really are. Yeah, lots. <laughs> uh, let me go back to the question I was going to ask you previously. We were talking about how you figure out who you are. And and how it's uh, and how we're either uh, all the same thing or maybe not all the same thing, but I think you said that the difference is how we and I'm interpreting here how we manifest what we truly are. Mm -hmm. uh, am I am I am I sort of paraphrasing what you said last yeah. correctly? Yeah, yeah. It's it's um, 
It's a matter of how we express that. Now, does that go back to what we do? So, in, in any ways, it does. Yes. So basically, we might be what we 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 might be what we do if we're doing what we are. I think that we are. Um, if we look at simply just what we do as the definition of who we are, we're limiting ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think what we do is an aspect of who we are, certainly. But if we look at what we've done over the course of our lifetime, lifetimes, that has changed dramatically. Yes. Okay, so now I go to the question is, what, what is, the key, I guess, here is to what you're saying in your book is in the word remembering. Is that right? Yes. What does that mean, remembering who you really are? I think over the course of our lifetime, we have uh, absorbed and adopted a lot of definitions around who we are. We've taken on mantles, we've taken on uh, roles that seem to define us to the rest of the world. And it's difficult sometimes to remember beyond those uh, exterior definitions. But I think that at the core of what each one of us is, is that remembrance, is that connection back to what the truth really is for us. And it's, you know, I used to be an educator in my first career out of uh, college, Mm -hmm. and uh, if you look at the word educate, it it comes from a Latin word, which really means to bring forth. Mm -hmm. And if we look at education from that perspective, um, part of what we're here to do is to shed what we've adopted that is not true about us and to bring forth that truth that we've always known. This is sounding curiously like religion. Is it? Slap <laughs> <Flat> my hand. <laughs> I don't mean religion. I mean, it, it's not sounding like religion so much. It's sounding like a spiritual discussion. It is a spiritual discussion. You know, and I think at the root of the whole thing, that's where we end up. Well, <laughs> how do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Well, I do believe that, like I said earlier on, I, I think that we are spiritual beings in a physical plane. I think that we're here doing in life, but that's not who we are. And I think that behind the doing that we are is that spiritual entity that doesn't ever die, doesn't ever change, is the truth of who we are. So how does that help people, knowing that they're, that they're a spiritual entity as opposed to being uh, an educator or a writer or, or a or oil well drilling. You know how it helped me is about the only thing I can speak to you about from personal experience. And how it helped me really was to not get so wrapped up in the definition of me as a human being doing here. To not feel so limited, to not feel so judged, um, to not feel so small in that role. It's helped me to back off from you know, some of my experiences in life that wanted to put me into a box or wanted to make me something other than what it felt like was right for me, it helped me back away from that a little bit and recognize that I'm so much bigger and so much deeper and broader than the things I do, that I don't have to feel as though that's all I am. Huh. Okay, I mean, I'll buy that. But how does that help you to know what to do if there's so many things to do? I mean, if you're... Oh, if, oh, if okay, if, I get your question. Okay. It doesn't help me decide what to do. <laughs> oh, 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 we're back. How's that? <laughs> That's good, but I, don't, I think we're leaving people at the edge of a cliff here. Yeah, no, it, 
who you are, has, it makes no difference what you do. I mean, this is really kind of the joyful part of this. Ah. There's no way you can live your life wrong. And that has been so long in coming to me that it was like all of a sudden I, I weighed, you know, so much less when I realized that I can't do it wrong. I can make choices, and those choices will give me experiences. Now, they may be experiences that in the moment feel good or don't feel good, and I may choose to choose differently the next time around. But the way in which I live my life is all about the choices I make. It has nothing to do with who I really am. I have the capacity to choose whatever I want to be the demonstration of who I am. Does that oh, make any sense? Yes, yes, you do. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. You have the ch- the capacity to choose what you do that manifests who you really are, and if you believe that you are uh, a, a a spirit that is part of everything, then what you'll do is probably what's going to be best for everything. Is that right? Yes, and what you do. How do you is, make money at that? How do you make money at? That? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's that question. <laughs> Yeah, but how do I make money at it? <laughs> yeah, right. Besides well, you know, writing your hit book, when, how are when, we going to Yeah, when you look at when you look at the variety of how people demonstrate themselves in this world, I, I just sometimes have to laugh because there are people who make money walking dogs and there are people who make money talking given this point in case. There are people who make money traveling. I mean, there are so many different ways that we can make money that that shouldn't be our first choice around what we choose to do. If we chose to follow those things that truly had an interest to us, and, and I think there's, you know, based upon the way we're raised and the, the, the experiences that we've had and all of our interaction with life, we've got certain likes and dislikes and certain passions about things that bring us joy when we're doing them. And if we follow what those things are, I think we have a much greater chance of making the money we really want to, that we really want to make. But most of us believe that we need to make, you know, we need to make a choice based on the money first mm-hmm. and then learn to like it. And why, do you suppose, ba- why do you suppose that is, Karen? Well, because that's what life says. I mean, that's the American dream. You know, which you, is? Which is, you know, choose. Well, what's college about? What's education about? Education isn't about follow your bliss. <laughs> education is about seek the money. And so we go into jobs that are high-paying jobs, high-profile jobs, jobs that have great potential to them or that have a big market, um, we go into that believing that we are going to incur a lot of overhead in life. We've got to be able to pay for things. So we go after the money. And if you talk to a lot of the baby boomers right now, the people that are part of your audience, mm-hmm. they went that route. I was one of them that went that route. And ask them how happy they are with their life right now. And most of them will say, well, sort of, but I still feel this whole." And that hole is that part of them that's never yet paid attention to what it is that gives them that thrill. Wow. Okay. So now when we come back, we're going to lead people. You're going to tell us how we can find what you call lasting happiness, right? Yeah. Okay. Stick with us. Don't go away because uh, if you want lasting happiness, you better hear the next part of this interview. This is David Ebbin on The Third Age. We'll be right back. Hi. This is Renee Stevens, host of Inside Out Weight Loss. If you want to be a thin person, 
You have to learn how to think like one. Learn how on my weekly show that aligns mind, body, and spirit for lasting change. Find me on iTunes or at personallifemedia.com. That's Inside Out Weight Loss, how to think like a thin person on personallifemedia.com. David Devin on the Third Age, and I am talking to Karen Wright, the author of the book, uh, The Sequoia Seed, Remembering the Truth About Who You Really Are. Why do you use the Sequoia Seed? What's that? It's, um, it's a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. Yes, but why Sequoia? It could be any kind of seed. Why did you pick that? Well, the Sequoia trees are very unique. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived in Southern, Southern California for a number of years and used to camp and hike in the Sequoia National Park. Uh-huh. A ranger told me about these remarkable trees. Not only are they the largest structures on the face of the earth, uh-huh. but they're also impervious to fire. Um, they have a natural fire retardant in their bark and oh. in their cones. Mm. And these cones are very small cones that might lie on the forest floor for 40, 50, 60 years before they actually release the seeds to sprout. And what causes them to release the seeds, because the cone is a very tight cone, it's not like a pine cone that's kind of open and flaky. Uh-huh. The heat of a forest fire causes these cones to relax and the seeds get released into the soil and new birth can take place. And I realize that for us humans, in our journey of figuring out who we are here, that it's those fires in our lives, those crises and tragedies and, and things that happen that make us release our stranglehold on our belief system and on the way we see things so that a new perception can show up and give us greater opportunity to make better choices, to see ourselves in a different way. Oh, that's a great metaphor. Thank you. So we need to go through the fire of discovery in order to, the fire of rebirth in a sense, to, to discover. We seem to. <laughs> uh. I, I believe that there's a way to get to happiness without tragedy, but <laughs> we seem to take that path more often. Well, why not? I mean, it's, it, 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 it should be that way, really, because we never learn without making mistakes, and we never learn without taking risks, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, risk is such an important thing. You talk about that in your book, don't you? Yes, I do, very much. Tell us about that. Yeah. How do you, how do you get to lasting happiness by taking a risk? Well, I think that the lasting happiness that I have found and others that I have talked with have found is in the recognition that um, happiness isn't about our circumstances. And we can be in circumstances that are less than perfect. We can be in that fire, if you will. And we can still find joy within ourselves and happiness within ourselves, regardless of whether we're in pain or whether we're in a circumstance that we want to get out of. Because that happiness is a choice. It's not about the circumstances we're in. It's about a decision we make that I will be happy regardless of the circumstances that I'm in. So the risks that we take out there are giving us an opportunity to sort of test that strength that we all have inside, that that strength that we Uh, all have a sense of. Good. And when we can test it and we can live through it, we prove to ourselves that I'm bigger than this, I'm stronger than this, I lived through it, I faced it, and I came out on the other end 
we get a greater sense of who we really are. You know, I, I like that. I, I actually took a shortcut. Instead of saying that I will be happy, which is sometimes uh, really difficult to transcend, I said to myself, I will not be unhappy. And it sure feels a lot easier that way when something comes along that could make you really unhappy. Yeah. You say, I will not be unhappy, and you go past it. Yeah. Karen, I, I really appreciate your being with us today. It's been a great discussion. I want to thank you for taking the time. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, tell us about your book one more time so everybody can hear it. Sure, The Sequoia Seed, Remembering the Truth of Who You Are. And this is all, it's a book, it's a very um, short little book, actually, written in individual chapters, so you can pick it up and just thumb through whatever draws your attention at the moment. But it's all about the common experiences we have as human beings with all of the fires we face and the recognition of truth in that fire and who we are. Great. Thanks a lot for being on the show. My pleasure. Bye. Uh, we uh, now have, as you know, we uh, always take this uh, time to go to the Environmental Defense Center and hear the latest of what's going on. And we have David with us. Welcome to the show again, David. Thank you, David. What's new? What's going on? What can we do to uh, protect this planet and uh, make ourselves a little uncomfortable but feel better about it? Well, there's a whole long list of things that are going on and that we can do. I'm going to talk to you about just a couple of them today. Good. Um, we just actually had our great big uh, annual event over the weekend. Um, Jack Johnson, world's number one singer, uh, actually entertained our audience. It was really, it was a, a lot of fun and uh, got an award for the, the work he does on the environment. Um, you know, here's a guy who's incredibly successful but looks for ways in to t- on his tour um, in the way he talks to people as he deals with kids to... Uh, try to do something good for the environment. And that's really part of it, is that each of us can find ways in our life that are not impossible to uh, make a positive difference. Um, What I wanted to talk about a little today is one of our cases, which is um, up on the Gaviota Coast. Um, People have heard a lot about it over many years, called Naples. Um, There's this little parcel of land on the beautiful Gaviota Coast that um, everybody admires as they drive up the coast. About two miles after you get past all of the, the, the suburbs of Santa Barbara um, into beyond what we call the urban limit line, um, about two miles into Gaviota, once long, long ago, back in 1888, um, a man thought that uh, this was going to be a wonderful place to put um, a, a um, something like the Italian Riviera, like Naples in Italy, <clears throat> on the California coast. He thought that the, the railroad was going to go through there, and he recorded a map with 400 little square parcels on it. Um, it turned out the railroad didn't ever come through there, or didn't for many, many more years, and everyone forgot about the whole thing for about 100 years until a developer that um, owned that property or bought that property, which had been zoned agricultural to save it, to save its beauty, discovered this and uh, sued the county of Santa Barbara and said, I, I have the right to put 400 homes out here on this beautiful parcel of land. And there was a big battle that went on for many, many years, and ultimately the California Supreme Court ruled that he was right, that he did have the right to uh, develop something on these parcels, that the county couldn't wipe them out. 
And so now there's a proposal which is being touted as a compromise um, where uh, the, the current owner of the property wants to put 144 roughly units out there, 72 mansions and 72 guest houses or employee houses that would be connected with that. Some of these houses are more than 10,000 square feet. Oh, yeah, exactly. So as you you sort of imagine yourself driving up the coast um, on your right, you would see houses up on the bluff tops. On your left, you would see houses instead of looking out at the ocean view. It would be kind of like um, driving through Montecito, perhaps. You know, it might be very pretty. Um, I'm sure they would be gorgeous houses, but they would not be the beauty, the beauty that we see there. And, um, you know, you've got uh, a lot of habitat for all different kinds of animals out there. It's, um, and beyond what we see, the ocean right below that cliff is probably one of the most diverse bits of ocean really in the entire world. It's called one of the 15... Um, in uh, ecological hotspots because of all of the diverse um, life that lives in, in the ocean in, in that area. It's just a small reef, the Naples Reef. And if there's all that development, it will cause, you know, there'll be fertilizers and there will be sewage treatment and there will be all kinds of stuff that will flow into that water. It'll change the very nature of what the Gaviota Coast is about. And another real concern is once we have development two miles in, there's really going to be nothing to stop development that goes back towards the city. So we're looking at losing a whole lot of the Gaviota Coast. So one of the things that the Supreme Court said was not that you could have 400 units. David, I just uh, want to tell you we have one minute, and if you could include in in the final minute what is if there's anything we can do. Okay, well... There are hearings that are going to start um, this month at the Planning Commission. There are hearings that are going on in the Planning Commission and in the Board of Supervisors about something called a transfer of development rights concept, which is a concept by which some of the rights that the owner has to develop could be moved to other places where it's more appropriate, in cities, um, in urban areas where we could increase density um, and sort of trade his right to, to build out um, in, in this uh, pristine area for an area that's more appropriate. So we're pushing that. And finally, ultimately, it's going to probably come down to trying to find a way to buy some of this land through uh, the Trust for Public Lands or some kind of other public trust entity so that we can assure that this land isn't going to be developed or if it's developed at all, that development takes place, takes place where it's going to have the least impact on both the environment and the visual qualities that we enjoy there. I would love, this is, this is really important, and I'd love to continue to this discussion. If we could pick it up on our next show, I really think it's important right, enough well, for us try, to spend well, some actually, real time. Well, next show, you get um, CEC, Community Environmental Council, but two weeks from now, I will have the attorney who, uh, Great. this case, Nathan Alley, Fabulous. give you a call, and he can talk some more about it. Oh, David, thank you so much. Thank we you, really David. need to do something. Okay. See you later. Take care. Bye-bye. This is The Third Age. We will be right back. Listen to Coaching the Life Coach, business and marketing strategies for growth of transformational practices, your guide in the 21st century marketplace on personallifemedia.com.
Welcome back to the Third Age. David Devin here with uh, Emily Figueredo and Lisa Headley. Peter Brill is on vacation, chasing bears, I guess, in Yellowstone. Um, Emily, anything that you need to say, want to say at the end of this? We have a minute left. Well, just one of the things I think so difficult for people later on in life to figure out is the same thing that people who are around my age, which is in college, to figure out is... Um, you know, when you're going through school, a lot of times you realize, okay, I do need to pay for these things. I do need the money. So it's difficult to, you know, step back and be like, well, is this what I want to be doing? Is it really my choice to be doing what I want to be doing than doing what's like providing my needs? So um, it's good to hear somebody say that and then reinforce the fact that, you know, eventually when you come down the line, maybe you'll have less now at the time, you know, less goods or materials, but in the future it'll pay off because you'll be happy with what you're doing. So um, it's nice to hear that, you know, make sure you're actually fitting the needs of what you want to do and what makes you happy. That is good advice for everybody at every age because we're all always wondering, are we doing the best we can do, the most we can do, the right thing we can do? And the answer is yes. Yes, you are, if you know who you are. So, remembering that, I am going to say thank you for being with us, and we'll be with you again. It's David Devlin on the Third Age. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.